0: <laughs>
1: Plowing ahead. Let's, let's, talk, uh, let's talk white women here, shall we? Let's talk white women. White women, you're amazing. Amazing your accomplishments over the last few years. I got to tell you, the way white women somehow hijack the woke movement, generals around the world should be analyzing this. Just to refresh your memory, the woke movement was supposed to be about people of color, not getting opportunities, the at-bats that they deserved, finally making that happen. And it was about that for about eight seconds. And then somehow, white women swung their Gucci booted feet over the fence of oppression and stuck themselves at the front of the line. I don't know how they did it. I've never heard so much complaining in my life from white women. My name is so hard, eh, with my SUV and my heated seats. You have no idea what it's like to be me. <laughs> Trash and white guys, the nerve. Where's the camera? The nerve of you white women. Let me, I, listen, I don't want to speak ill on my bitches here. Okay? I don't. But let's let's go back in history here, okay? You guys stood by us toxic white males through centuries of our crimes against humanity. You rolled around in the blood muddy. And occasionally, when you wanted to sneak off and hook up with a black dude, if you got caught, you said it wasn't consensual. Yeah! That's what you did! That's what you did! So why don't you shut up, sit down next to me, and take your talking to!
2: And I came from a woman. I wonder why we take from my women, while we break while we're women to hate our quick. My sister, y'all. My brothers, My brothers. I, love you. I love you. I hate to know some of you treat us like lovers. Glover. Black car revolt, maybe you can use discover. discover. Define yourself, do you feel the same way about your mother? mother? Do you overlook our beauty, but you love it on all the others? others? Hope you teach your daughters all to stay away from suckers like yourself if you don't love yourself. I'm so southern, southern. I was taught to feed us soul with the without hot ovens. Here's a plate, know your hate come from a black man's struggle. struggle. We all in the same shape, so I know I fit your puzzle. puzzle. Either way, we got your back, we only pray you be our muscle. Strengthen the times We all overcome with trouble Every day we pulling doubles For ourselves and home My mom and daddy taught me Early on, protect your own We never stop loving you So turn your love back on And I pray you feel the same way As that Tupac song We ain't your hoes or your bitches Trophies are meant for pimping Recognize a gift from God Our ways is a birthday or Christmas To protect our lives You gonna, take it, you gonna take it to the limit Rib of our rib Do you still feel the same? came from a woman Got our from a woman And I came from a I want to rob the tank from my women while we break papa away and take eight hours. Now, since we all came from we got our name from the woman and I came from the woman. I want to rob the tank from my women while we break papa away and take eight hours. I don't know.
3: And since we all came from a woman, got our name from a woman, got our game from a woman, I wonder if we take from our women, why we rape our women, do we hate our women? Of course, that bar is coming from the icon Tupac, and historic track, Keep Your Head Up. A line line from that song actually had an indelible impact on me when I was younger. And since a man can't make one, he has no right to tell a woman when or where to create one. That line has had a choke on me since I first heard it as a youth. All this talk about reproduction rights in women's bodies really has a number of people in a proverbial chokehold as well. Some even asking, how did we get here? And my response is, we've always been here. Since the country's inception, the idea of population control has never left the American consciousness. Now you might be asking, like, what do you mean, Kamara? Well, I'm going to get there. But before we, that, we must first address the idea of white women advocacy. History has shown us that white women as a group, for the most part, are incapable of truly advocating on the behalf of everyone outside of their own self-interest. U.S. white women, in particular, are fundamentally unequipped to do effective community activism. From the birth, the majority of white people in the U.S. were taught how to join clubs, not build community. It's why the idea of community building is not inherent within white framework of organizing or giving back. Whereas black people instinctually have always are looking to draw up those from the place from whence they came. White people tend to see this type of community pressures as abnormal and not necessarily instinctual. Say, the right thing to do, or do the right thing if you mess up, is to lose your place. That's actually how most white people frame identity and community. This is actually psychologically based on being in the dominant racial group for so long that there's no use to see community based on because society has literally been curtailed for your sense of presence. If the world as you see it is built according to your lens, then why would you have an inherent want to create community? The world is your community. However, for black folk, we have had we have had to learn to operate and survive in a white space since we first touched down on this soil. It's because of this foreign identity that we began to seek out communal engagement with anyone who looks like us, regardless of tribe. We are literally on this ship together. So community, in a way, has been embedded in our DNA. For white women, this has worked in the opposite. Society has been geared in protecting their identity, their self-worth albeit in a very patriarchal way. Do you remember how early I mentioned the infancy of this nation began to property control? Well, between 1774 and 1816, the black population in the South outnumbered whites three to one. Now of course, this because of slavery, whether through import or actually breeding, but nevertheless, this was a fact. So much of that, so much so that white society started to talk about the need to create more white babies in order to keep up with population, keep up with the population. A society where more blacks black existed Existed comparatively to whites Frightened them If only because of the slave revolts They heard about in the Caribbean Remember last week I was How I mentioned the Haitian revolution Scared white men in creating the second amendment Well also that it also jump started The need to talk more about white men The need for more white men To combat the growing number of slaves If there was a revolt or a slave war coming We need white men to stand in the gap Thus began the importance Of protecting white womanhood You see, we can't have white women being raped and impregnated by these savages. We need to keep the bloodline pure and undiluted. And white women, well, they understood this social contract imparted by white men. It worked for them. The only issue is that they didn't have a voice in the system of white progeny. So thus began the March for Women's Voting Rights. Yet, even still, they needed black voices to help push against a system that they inherently benefited from. So in comes the the Truth anti-woman speech in 1851. Yet, even in that speech, we've come to find out that it had been doctored up and not even a true representation of how Sorgener really spoke. Its famous syntax of broken English familiar to black slave speaking patterns at the time was not an accurate representation of how Miss Truth really spoke. But the woman who memorialized the speech in order to, for mass production and appeal didn't think an audience would appreciate the proper language syntax of a black woman who knew how to communicate effectively. So she literally made it a caricature of what was actually said, this is, a, this is apparent because years later, historians noticed that the widely known speech of Sorgenre mentioned 13 children, but in reality, she only had five. But that number apparently was just too low because what black woman only has five children? I saw this example, because, I say this example because even back then, a white woman's advocacy was only shaded by her an inherent need for supremacy. Even today, you see white men marching against this new law that's been put out by the Supreme Court being performative in their agency by dressing up in red robes reminiscent of The Handmaid's Tale. It reeks its unseriousness, but also a reminder that their advocacy is only shaped by their purview and not one of real women's rights across race and sexuality. But why would they? It's hard to see society has been inherently broken when you've been the recipient of the accoutrements of this society. Just this past week, I tweeted out how um, Cassidy Hutchinson, this 25-year-old woman, is no hero, and the media needs to stop reframing her narrative as such. She's just a white woman who ran out of legal options and decided to testify. Before that, she sat perfectly fine front row watching the destruction of society. It's only when she when it's only when it benefited her that she decided to speak out. Well, of course, a white woman got in my Twitter mentions and said I was being a typical man and downgrading the strength of women testifying, just like you guys did with Anita Hill. Huh? What? How oh, why are you here? Anita Hill and this basic woman are not in the same class. Except to white women, they effectively are, and that is the problem. Black women have been leaders and voices of change in advocacy for women's rights since I can since the beginning of this nation. It's that they are often drowned out and coupled in the framework of white ideology. We need to understand that a white woman's presence in advocacy more or less drowns out the idea of what w- women advocacy really is. But don't take my word for it. I'm actually going to have four women, powerful women, educated women, actually uh, direct this conversation on white women advocacy and, and how women's rights have been actually um, hijacked by the idea of white supremacy. But before we get into that, welcome to Unculture Bias. My name is Kamara Williams. I am your host. On the show, we say that culture is a matter of perspective and opinion. After all, culture is another way to say it's covered. We are culture, we are biased, and we are black. If you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. If you're returning to this podcast, welcome, welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. We often say that, you know, we like everybody who share this podcast, is sharing, is caring. If you're listening on Apple, please, please, please leave a review, a five-star review, talking about how much you love this podcast is part of how Apple looks at engagement and um, you know, so we need people to continue to do that. Uh, shout out to Rob Foster, who actually did a great review on our podcast last week. Shout out to our sponsors this week, uh, My Compass Tax Advisors. Or excuse me, my uh, Coleman Law. No no longer My Compass Tax Advisors, but Coleman Law. You can reach them at 850-597-2990. Um, you could help them, they could help you with your business and um, tax strategies and issues, um, so even real estate. So contact them at 850-597-2990. Of course, if you need a market for real estate, contact Keithstone Global Real Estate at 407 680 8510. And of course, if you're in a market for probate, estate planning, real estate, contact our firm at Smith & Williams at 888 SWTG Law or 888 798 4529 or um, info at swtglaw.com. We're also pushing out a, um, a package of uh, talking about um, trust and uh, land trust in particular for those who have properties in an LLC. Uh, that's not what you're supposed to do. Put it in. A, put it in a land trust, so we can help you along the way. So please, please, please contact us, so we can actually get that um, taken care of for you. All right, beautiful. So let's now get into this pod, and I'm going to start off with uh, the connector of these beautiful um, black women. Uh, Toya, my friend, Toya, you still with me? <laughs>
4: Yes, I'm here.
3: All right, Toy is uh, joining us remotely and um so Toy and I we you know we're friends and we you know um we've been trying to figure out how to get her on the podcast for a while now. And so you know, um uh, I'm glad she's finally here.
4: Thank you for having me. I know this has been a long time coming, so I'm very excited to finally be on the pod and also have two of my friends with me as well to talk about such a relevant subject um, right now.
3: Wonderful, wonderful. I'm going to get on you about um, how this actually happened with uh, these uh, two women. But before that, I want to introduce them. So, uh, (laughs) because I think it's only fair. All right, so I'm going to now introduce uh, Dr. Ashley Clemens. Um, Are you still with us, Ash?
5: Yes. Hello. Thank you for having me.
3: No, thank you for coming on. Um, Of course, um, you are a doctor and please tell the listening public uh, what your discipline is.
5: Uh, My discipline is English, African-American literature uh, with a focus in Black migration and Detroit history and studies.
3: Oh, wow. That's dope. Well, thank you for coming on, and I'm really looking forward to engaging with you in in this conversation. Thank you. And last but not least, we have Dr. Rachel Burton. Are you still with us, Doc? I'm
6: here. Thank you for having me.
3: Thank you for jumping on. Um, Please enlighten us on your discipline.
6: So uh, Black film, Black literature, um, Toni Morrison, Julie Bash, and then Black Cinematic Adaptations.
3: Wonderful, wonderful. Actually, I'm really excited uh, for you uh, mm-hmm. coming on. And um, we actually had a little fun yesterday because uh, you're you're in California.
6: Yes, I'm on the West Coast. You're on the West the best coast.
3: coast. Yeah, the West Coast. There you go. And, you know, we were kind of having a little fun yesterday uh, regarding SoCal, NorCal, and all that. Um, yes. I actually have a quick funny beef with Toya, though. Um, so here's the thing. Toya did the thing where most like she knows that black people do not do this. (laughs) Black people do not just call FaceTime out of nowhere. That's like showing up at somebody's doorstep. Right. So I'm sitting on my porch and I'm waiting for a call from Toya. And I see, you know, like black people, like we kind of like, you see a call, but it's like FaceTime. Like, Oh, they don't mean to FaceTime. So I'm gonna let it ring one or two times. And it didn't, it's kept ringing. I'm like, did she really just FaceTime me for out of nowhere? Like no warning. They don't know what I'm doing. So then I answer it, and then I see Ashley and Rachel on the the FaceTime. You don't know what I was doing. You just call it. That was that was violating. That was real violating, right there. You know, a lot of folks. And that's just my thing.
4: I don't like texting. I don't like phone calls. I will go straight to FaceTime. So,
5: but Toya will FaceTime you. In the morning, in oh, the crack God. of At
3: dawn, five o'clock in the morning. That ain't even cool. That ain't even cool. That ain't. <laughs> now even
4: cool. I'm offended that you not up and ready to Facetime with me. So. Oh
3: yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, so First of all, I feel bad for Rachel because fi- five five a.m. is a is a bit much to be FaceTiming anybody. The
6: only it's person legit that- five a.m. Like I'm waking up to Toya like cheesy <laughs> like she is right now like. <laughs>
3: The only people that need to be Facetiming me at five AM is Jesus, and that let me know he's coming back. That's the only people. That's the person. Everybody else, I feel like, yo, you gotta, you gotta chill. You gotta but, chill. But it's
5: only to let you know that he's coming back for no other reason. Can Jesus call you at that time?
3: No, no, yeah. It's, it's, if Jesus be like, yeah, I got a word for you. What well, can this wait till like eight AM? I'm not. <laughs> I mean, is it work going to change in three hours? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> so, um. Speaking of which, um, just kind of getting into the subject here. What did you guys uh, make of the opening? Um, I'm really, because I really am want to start the conversation, and I want you guys to lead it. But I want to see what did you guys take from the opening. Was I off base, or did you were you appreciative of it, or like you know just I'm gonna start with you, Toyin, and you know we'll tra- go to Ashley and Rachel and we'll hear your opinions, and you guys just kind of take this conversation there. So.
4: So the three of us was actually in our DMs. Like, he really did his research. We are appreciating some of the context here. So you did very well in contextualizing some of the historical basis as it comes to this relation, this interracial relationship with Black women and white women. um, I really appreciated um, especially the bit about Sojourner Truth and her speech, Ain't I a Woman? And why I find that speech especially important is because um, Sojourner Truth, she connects her womanhood to a lot of her labor, right, in that speech. And that's a lot of trickling down historically that white women depend upon the labor of Black women in order to forward their movements. So the fact that a Black woman's identity has to be so engrossed with her labor and then seeing white women benefit off of that, but not even listening to the intersectional problems of Black women, right? I found that very, it's still very disturbing even till this day. So yeah. you see on Twitter and all, well, a lot of social media platforms, um, Instagram, TikTok, you see white women saying, why can't we just come together? And you see (laughs) Black women fighting back and say, but where were you when this and this happened? But why can't we put that aside, the race aside, drop that? But they're still not understanding that because we work in an intersection identity, right? Right. Race, gender, class, right? right? Race is not something that we can just pick up and put down in order to benefit you when you need our labor right right Right. so i found that very important um one of the other things that i really liked um hearing that bit of the clip besides him saying you know my bitches i didn't agree with that part the language there but i going into what he was talking about well white women want to see themselves as somebody that they've been in this game when it comes to social justice and but black women have provided a framework for that for a long time. Right. Right. So one of the things um, that I really want to touch upon is even historically looking at the Combahee River Collective. Right. So they were founded as a black feminist, lesbian, socialist organization. And what they wanted to do was create a space where they would be seen because at the time, right, Mm
0: -hmm.
4: you have the feminist movement where white feminists were not acknowledging what they needed at that time. But then you also have the civil rights movement where Black men were not acknowledging what Black women need during that time. So they had to make their own social justice framework in order to combat things, right? So then you kind of see white women trying to pick at this framework, but still not acknowledging the things that Black women need. And this is decades later.
3: Right. Oh, that's, that's dope. That's dope. Ash, what are, what are your thoughts? We still, we still have you? Ashley? Yeah,
5: sorry. It's, it's storming where I am. Oh.
3: Uh,
5: I, I agree with Toya. I mean, Throughout history, we see these different movements where either white women have, like the beginning, say, hijacked uh, black women's narratives or black women's campaigns or completely ignored it, silenced it. Uh, One thing that's really interesting in my research is kind of thinking about white women's role in lynching and uh, the the idea of this landscape and keeping the purity of white women. So like Bill Burr, is that Bill Burr? Yeah. That was uh yes. yeah, that that beginning was really powerful. Uh because there is a certain complacency that we see uh that's even in the they're talking about it. So like uh the same women who are kinda upset about Roe versus Wade, I mean how many white women kinda how many put Trump in office?
3: Right. 53% in two thousand sixteen, yeah. And then, right. so I mean, you can think
5: about that percentage, yeah.
3: right? And that percentage actually went up to 56% um, in 2020. So it's like they didn't even learn their lesson. They still went back, you know, to the same supremacy that was trying to take away, quote unquote, their rights and their advocacy, their own um, protection of their own body.
5: Exactly. So now that they're impacted by it, there's this need to come together. We've seen Audrey Lord and Angela Davis both critique uh, white women for, uh, the same thing, these spaces that are meant to talk about things that impact people of color. Uh, they're missing people of color. Right. So I would think this is omission of black voices, the omission of black women when white women try and take over things. It's kind of like the, the issue. So, uh, the introduction was really cool. I, I like the, the comedy, but I, I feel like who is the artist that you, you played after that. I mean, not Tupac, but the the actual poet.
3: Oh, um, Rhapsody, the 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 song. She's a dope hip yeah. hop artist.
5: Yeah,
3: yeah, I love her. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Rachel, go ahead and chime in. if you're still rocking with us,
6: yeah, no, I'm feeling what everyone is saying, and just kind of thinking of it broadly, just like this historical like hijacking of like these. Uh, social movements and particularly like Black liberation movements, Um, but also thinking of like this refusal of white women to acknowledge their privilege and that privilege being based on Black suffering and anti-Black violence, right? And so on the one hand, you have white women saying like, I'm oppressed, you know, because I'm a woman. And it's just like, you know, again, going back to like Sojourner Truth's time where, you know, it's truth is like, um, we're enslaved. Like, yeah, right. okay. <laughs>
0: like, right.
6: You know, so thinking about um, that and then, you know, in terms of like uh, late 19th century and, and earlier, of course, but on into like the early 20th century. So what Ashley mentioned about like the history of lynching um, in this country and then on into like the late 20th and early 21st century, all the way to Trump. So like this, this continued history of like, anti-black violence um and white women's like complacency in that violence uh, and participation in that violence
3: so let's let's kind of like do a deep dive a little bit into that like what is what is it that, that this idea that white women you know why do you think it is that white women like they can take off the coat of oppression when it's you know, when it doesn't benefit them, and then when they can put it back on the rack, and then when it's when they feel like they're being oppressed, they put it back on and they, you know, talk about how the coldness of white supremacy is affecting their lives. But before they were okay with the temperature. Like why do you think it's something that is so common and yet you know they fail to see that, you know they're they're poisonous of their actions. anybody can jump in on that one.
5: I think it goes back to to privilege they have the privilege to take it off yeah they have the privilege to navigate into these different spaces and and not be held accountable or uh to be targeted so if there was this movement where white women took the back seat to things that actually impacted black women and people of color period then we would see some effective action if you want to see a movement let a black woman lead it and take the back seat use your privilege to empower black women Right. Not to, 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 to abandon them. -hmm.
3: Toy, you were feeling that. I'm sorry, Rachel, you about to jump in.
6: Yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, I completely agree with that. And like just this, there's an investment, right? Like there's, there's this benefit that comes from it. So it's just like, okay. uh, When things seem to be going one way, I'm going to be on this side of the fence when it goes, but again, going back to what Ashley said, like, the privilege of being able to do so, right? Mm -hmm. And we're talking like generations, generations. I think it also fits within this larger um, history of like the building of generational wealth for white people, but like the historical exclusion of black folks from like resources and just, you know, uh, adequate housing, healthcare, whatever, you know, anything. Um, And so what would it mean then Because also, too, like at times where Black people could um, get more quote unquote rights and everything, it's just like this usurping of that. So we have like, not saying that Obama ended (laughs) racism or anything, but we have Obama's election. And then right after Obama is Trump, you know, and then, you know, so uh, I think it also fits within like this larger um, issue of like privilege and then exclusion. um, And again, violence against Black people.
3: That's all you you wanted. And
6: I
4: think I think there's something about privilege that's really sexy, right? So who is going to willingly give up privilege and association, power, a proximity of whiteness, especially in this Eurocentric framework, right? So I think I think when we think historically who has had to be on the bottom in order to maintain that sense of privilege? Right. And it's okay. always been Black women, right? So right. even when you go to, I, I think it was Ashley that mentioned there, was it Rachel, this, this idea of the cult of true womanhood where you have white women that are seen as pure and highly religious and um, to be protected and respected. For that dynamic to exist, What do you have to maintain in order for that to keep um, being true? Right. Right. And it goes back to um, different associations with black women. So in order to keep that up, you still have to keep a sense of privilege in order to keep that ideology. Um, So I think the root of it is just privilege. Mm -hmm.
5: Yeah, you you you're saying something, Natoya, about having to keep that up because we have this like glass ceiling feminism, uh, that we see even with with Hillary Clinton and those kind of backing with that, of like we shattering the glass ceiling, shatter, but what about the folks who aren't even there? It takes an understanding of being at a certain level to even touch the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Black and brown women are 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 not even near it to shatter it. Right. So who's gonna benefit from it once the ceiling is shattered? Right. And who's left to get the shards? That's just exactly yeah.
3: what I was going to say. So you, you, you know, you shattering this, this, um, ceiling and it's like to shatter, that means something is going to fall and it's going to be sharp pieces. And it's not generally the person that shatters it out, that gets the brunt of the fame, but it's the, you know, it's the, um, uh, under it or people who are under it. And so exactly, who is under, who is the one uplifting white women breaking this glass ceiling? It's, you know, to your point, um, Black people, more specifically to uh, Black women, who are often the stools of, you know, a white woman ascendancy within um, advocacy, you know, and you know, again, like like pivoting a little bit back to Sword of the truth, like it's it's amazing in that particular that convention. Um, she wasn't the only person that made the speech, made a speech, but it was her speech that became the most I you know lionized in that movement because. Nothing reached. In fact, in that particular convention, um, I think it was a number of different white men who would try to infiltrate that convention, and it was kind of really unorganized, and it was nothing really um, sustained. So even in that sense, um, that part of history is left out how white men were trying to destroy that convention and how white women really didn't really have they couldn't really figure out their voice in that particular convention, but it was only sort of truth to actually say, oh, I have something to say about this, and she got up. And then even in that sense, they still bastardized her syntax and her, and her um, position in order to fit their framework of how they wanted to see advocacy. So I think that was kind of the, really the more fascinating thing about that particular, uh, um, that particular uh, uh, speech. But go ahead, Rachel, I see you want to chime, chime in.
6: Yeah, I would just argue too, like before um, the Combahee River Collective, I would say that Sojourner Truth in a way kind of set the foundation for like this Black feminist framework. Because also in the Combahee River Collective, I could be wrong, but um, they talk about like saving Black women means that you save the world. So like part of Black feminism is like this bottom up approach as opposed to like this trickle down um, approach to to social justice, so yeah. Thinking about that,
3: um, so I was actually, you know shifting conversation a little bit um, about talk about privilege here and the shield of privilege. Um, I was, I don't know, I'm a history major. If you guys can't tell, but um, so uh, specializing in um, Black history, we I, could tell. You could we tell could tell. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, yes. And so one of the things I you know. Unfortunately when evaluating black history I had to look at white um how white reaction to that history and um one of the things that was I, I always think about is how the daughters of the Confederacy and how, you know, they began this narrative of talking about how great the Confederacy was and how it was about um really they start reframing it in a sense of honor and code and, you know, Southern way of life. And in a way, it it kind of just seeped into how we started seeing society in a very patriarchal way, right? Because it's this idealized version of the Southern gentleman really came out of that particular era of, of the uh, uh, Daughters of Confederacy uh, reframing the Civil War. And I'm fascinated in that because even now you can see how they're trying to tear apart that patriarchy that they created and that they leaned into, and it's like this is this wasn't created by white men. This was created by white women who benefited from the privilege of white supremacy. But now it's like you're trying to deconstruct a system that you created because it it really was the thing that upheld you. Um, what are you guys thoughts on that, Toya? Or can you hear me? What are you? Th- I-
4: I'm I'm kind of still, hmm, I'm processing it. Rachel, Ashley, do y'all want to speak on that first?
6: Yeah, what around this, like what time in terms of the daughters of, because when you talked about uh, the daughters of the Confederacy, I thought about for some reason, films like um, oh, "What's That Film About Slavery?" Birth of a Nation, uh, where it like kind of paints slavery in like this benevolent l- light. Yeah, it's birth,
3: of a- it's birth of a Nation. Yeah. Not even Birth no, no, of no, a Nation. No, no, no. It was um, it was a uh, Gone with the Gone the wind. with the Wind. <laughs>
6: yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I'm yeah. thinking yeah. about like these prevalent images, right? That um, and also we can talk about like the way white women um have been uh illustrated in films like Gone with the Wind and Birth of a Nation, right, which, you know, relates to what we were talking about in terms of like this um, cult of true womanhood, mm-hmm. uh, like the helpless white woman who needs um, protection from uh, Black men um, and and white men, you know, being their protectors and this, this, this and that. So it, I don't know if I have an answer for you right now, but it did make me think about that in terms of like um, this portrayal of White women in this is very particular way, and then now this like fight against quote unquote fight against the patriarchy.
3: Right, right. Um, well, it was actually the oldest Confederacy in like uh, late 19th century, 1894. Um, okay, and so is you know 30 years a little bit after the um, after the Civil War, but you also saw within that particular period society in general trying to reframe again yeah reframe what the civil war was right it was like it wasn't really that that bad it wasn't it wasn't about race or it was about slavery it was about you know um, yeah states rights and independency and so and and honor and code and that became the 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 notion of really how white people wanted to be viewed as the heroes of their own story even with that even though they're the villains you know i mean and yeah and Go
6: ahead. Yeah. At the same time, because now and and hopefully I'm not too off topic here, but we have the rise of like minstrelsy and like minstrel shows Mm -hmm. that made black people seem as though they were happy being slaves. right? Right. Right. And so like these images being put out to like reframe history. Right. Which arguably we could say that connects to like Trump. And his idea of making America great again, quote, unquote, again. And it's like, when was America great? Right. Right? So like this, um, this, this uh, fictional history of America being this great place. Um, And, and yeah, there's a connection for sure between like this late 19th century racist ideology and current 21st century, like uh, extremism.
0: Right.
5: right. But I think what you're talking about, Rachel, is really interesting when it comes to thinking about the lexicon that has been used to change the narrative, like the, yeah. this coding or this language that we know is disguised as racism, but like make America great again. Um, Daughters of the Confederacy, we talk about this preserving of heritage and not actually this reproduction of racism. So thinking about these uh, conversations about removing Confederate statues and, and the Daughters of the Confederacy, they're one of the groups who, who try to preserve those statues, who, right. who like, let's move them into museums or whatever. Right. So I think it just goes back again to how language and, and coding and all of that has been used by groups like Daughters of the Confederacy to keep preserving racism in different ways. Mm-hmm. That's
4: I think that's interesting because even when you bring up stuff like that, um, what about the language you use or what about the things that happen? It's like, well, let's not talk about that stuff. Right. Let's 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 ignore it. So I think
5: that banning the and we can do race that, theory. we can reframe it like with the CRT. thing. I'm sorry, Rachel, but just thinking about critical race theory, if, if we can keep them from talking about it, we can keep from acknowledging that slavery was not just uh, enslaved laborers or enslaved americans these were black people subjugated then we can wipe away some of that history could whiten that history the way that sojourner truth uh and image and, and other folks images have kind of been co-op for that
3: yeah you know um i was actually uh, i'm starting to find this this quote here where texas is now um they're trying to re they're trying to reframe even like the term slavery and say they were just um, you know unwilling workers <laughs> that's unwilling what, not
0: workers, workers. <laughs> yeah
3: like it's kind of like interesting like it's um, th- there's a bill here to kind of change the way the reframing it you know let's take, get away from that nasty term of slavery and say they were unwilling workers and um, you know and again it's re- recontextualizing the pain behind the word and the pain of the history. But uh, even back then, like we talked about the daughters of Confederacy and this new, the new movement, and there's actually a term for it and it's uh, escaping me now, but the new movement of reframing how the civil war, that in a way is kind of like the CRT movement. That's the kind of the birth of CRT, right? Like, again, we are, we are trying to change how we are perce- how our history is perceived in order for future generations to look at the country or the, the country men as heroes in the story. You know, and, you know, it's even why, you know, we now are, we just, you know, coming off this 4th of July holiday by the time people listen to this, um, society has looked at it like, you know, we are celebrating forefathers who at the time in 1776, um, you know, they're one hand, they're talking about, they're declaring their independence from England. You know, all men are created equal. And in their next breath, they're creating a constitution that, you know, uh, takes the narrative that black human beings are only three fifth, you know, three fifth compromise. And then women are not even mentioned within that, that particular document. So like all men are created equal, but it's really the syntax with that is all white men are created equal. And even that white men are not created equal because only white men with status and title should be considered as the you know, apportioned person with with a voice. And so I, I, I think it's, it's fascinating now when we're looking at um, looking at history and how we've tried to reframe these heroes in our story and our forefathers, we can really ask a question. Yes, they might've been smart men, brilliant men in the way they were trying to um, create a democracy that's never been created before, um, but they also were wicked in how they saw human beings. And I think two things can be true. I um I see uh Toya you're kind of nodding in affirmative are you hello
4: yeah I was just agreeing with everything I was like yes 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 (laughs) yes yes." um and then also how does that kind of intertwine with now going into this contemporary movement of feminism right so what And it also speaks to, well, what wave are we in, really, if we're still not considering the movement on an intersectional basis? And you made me think of um, this quote by bell hooks. I looked it up. So she said, The contemporary feminist call for sisterhood, the radical white woman's appeal to Black women and all women of color to join the feminist movement is seen by many Black women as yet another expression of white female denial of the reality of racist domination of their complicity in the exploitation and oppression of Black women and Black people. So that was Bell Hooks. Rest in peace to Bell Hooks. Um, I just just think um, we can't, start together if it's still well i don't see race right 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 right. if you don't see race then you do not see me right and that removes the complexity of the real issues that are going on and it it even brings me back to um was that that white woman who she was she was at a representative mary miller right Hmm. she thanked trump for a historic victory yeah. for white yeah. life right yeah. 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 and then yeah. she tried to flip it later why well, didn't mean to say white life i meant no you said what you said she said what she said you yeah. said yeah. what you said right. right so then when white feminists or white women that want us to fight with them say let's set aside race race is at the very root of this because it was a historic victory for white life correct yeah. right
3: right so it's funny uh, um, you mentioned um, Bell Hooks, and she often talks about how, um, and you guys know this better than I would, obviously, as you know um, your disciplines in literature. But just um, how she talks about how white feminism often tries to um, eliminate the personalization of race in order to fit their narrative, right? So, like, she talks about how, like, they're um, when you when you live, like, oh, let's not talk about race; let's just talk about feminist ideals and it's like when you stop talking about race you're talking about you're taking away the caricature of of a um black woman in a sense right and you're setting aside our identity in order to fit your narrative and um am i am i right in that racial or actually am i hitting on that a little yeah bit?
6: i'm i keep thinking about the like the whole roe v wade and everything right. and like white women their anger you know and like at the same time, like thinking about like abortion rights and everything, um, at the same time in the seventies, you know, you have black and brown women being forced, like forced sterilization of black women. so, yeah, the right, there should be a right to not have children, but also to the right to have children when you want children. Like, it's like, you know, so if you take out like this racial analysis, it becomes about like, oh, you know, um, it's about control over my own body and this, 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 and that. But when we think about like the way Black women, again, have been treated historically, right? And like this control, like this uh, uh, state control over Black women's bodies, like Black women from slavery to present. And it you know, without this racial analysis, like you don't see the whole picture. Without a racial analysis, you don't see the whole picture, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, again, we were talking about privilege and stuff like that. Like um, if you're not looking at the whole picture, then yeah, maybe, you know, or, or not maybe, but like it, certain things will only benefit certain populations, mm-hmm. right? But if you look at the whole picture, then you can see how um, certain populations, for example, Black women are like left out, um, uh of the picture, so I don't know. I'm saying a lot of things no,
3: here, no, no, I, but yeah. But you, um,
5: you, go ahead. I'm yeah. sorry, Rachel. You, you're, what you're saying is like important. Is thinking about this um, colorblind solidarity. There it
3: is. That, there it is. Yes, yes. Uh,
5: folks want to have, and I believe was it Audrey Lord that said something like, uh, this mere tolerance of difference is the grossest form of uh, grossest type of reform. Mm-hmm. Like trying to keep away." or uh take race out of these conversations but still say we're fighting for something right you know i i, I hear you rachel yeah thank you
3: it, it um go I, ahead i'm sorry i just
5: want
4: to also add that the fact that this can only be sympathized by them if, it, if it's still painted up as white. So yes. the Handmaid's Tale. Yes. Oh my gosh, we've seen this happen before because look at what happened at the Handmaid's Tale. It's a fictional world, yes. right? Based on what? What happened to who? Right.
5: Well, the
6: suffering becomes legible when it's white women suffering, right? If it's Black women oh, or saying, Black people, people it. suffering, it's illegible. Like, it's illegible.
5: And, and it's palatable they can swallow that type of pain. They can swallow that type of violence because it's not something that they've done on their own hands.
3: So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how like the Handmaid's Tale has really taken on the public persona, particularly in um, in the um, shadow of Roe v. Wade and why black women feel offended by that imagery so much. Anybody want to speak to that first?
5: Well, I think it goes to uh, kind of what both Toya and Rachel was saying about romanticizing uh, this history, of romanticizing the treatment, the historical treatment of Black bodies. So Toni Morrison has often critiqued uh, folks like Harriet Beecher Stull, uh Flannery O'Connor, uh, who are hailed as these like canonical, uh, great American writers. When they write about a time, in a way that it sounds like you're 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 going to a nice little walk in the park, right? But it's still during the time of the antebellum. So just the treatment of black bodies as being ignored um, to tell a story that just feels good to white people. Yeah, and I
6: think too that has to do that reminds me of like not only like um, like conservatives right especially like when you think of like colorblind ideology but also to like sometimes like this white liberalism as though like all, all everybody suffers the same. there's something that you said um during your opening um that made me think about that this this idea that like oh yeah everybody is the same and we all suffer the same and it's like no we don't all suffer the same way like um but think you know just uh, this white liberalist like approach To to right. certain issues
3: So like I want to go back To that comment that was in my mentions About the, this woman saying that Oh you know um, <laughs> Anita Hill and you know This white woman testifying or They're in the same light and it's, and it's how you yeah. men Are trying to always disparage Black uh, excuse me disparage women From you know um, Testifying and I'm just like First of all wrong crowd number one uh, number two, um, the the fact that you aligned Anita Hill, a professor Anita Hill, with this white twenty five year old white woman who was who her you know from all the uh, I guess accounts really was her best attribute is that she knew people because she was a twenty two year old intern at the in the White House, which is like incomparable. So it's like I don't even understand how you could even reconcile these two people in the same space outside the fact that they were testifying in the same building. But, you know, like that is the really the only thing I see that can make the comparison. But to compare, put them in the same space really shows you the poison of um, white women advocacy because they're often they want to ignore why was Anita Hill there and why was her testimony so important? Because she was testifying against a black man who had sexually harassed her and sexually abused her, right? And a black man who was protected, who is being protected by a white system, right? A black man who's done everything he can to destroy black, um, prior to even joining the Supreme Court, to to destroy um, black representation within the EOC and employment rights. And then a black man now who got onto the Supreme Court replacing Thurgood Marshall, who's done, as you can see now, um, completing his 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 uh, career um, goal of trying to destroy or trying to um, take apart um, progressive ideals within um, American government. So that is what you know the importance of Anita Hill. That is where you know she was standing again, in the front in the gap, trying to stop people America from making a decision about this man. And yet for somebody to sit there and say, with this white woman it's the same thing because she's wanted to testify against Trump you know when she had no problem she had no problem sitting at in the in literally in the front seat of this particular white supremacy but now only she is she's testifying now she she was wants to be deigned as a hero i wasn't having it i wasn't feeling it um you know anybody else want to co- comment on that part portion of it toya rachel i'm sorry
6: no, I was just going to say you said it. That's, you know, uh you you know exactly what I was talking about when I uh, had mentioned it, like this idea, like we're all, like it's a level playing field. Like, no, it's not, never has been, but yeah, I'm just agreeing with you. Mm-hmm.
3: Toya?
4: I think also when we talk about Anita Hill, it was much easier to... Um, throw dirt on her character, right? So she is, um, she was taking up space, right? And and combating something that you really weren't supposed to talk about. And then when you add being black to that, right. it was a smear campaign, right? Against her.
3: Right. Absolutely. Um, all right. So let me actually let's move the conversation and shift it. I'm, I'm sorry, Ashley. Did you want to? Did you want to chime in, or did you have anything? Uh,
5: I was just going back to thinking about the representations of black women versus white women in, in the media and in TV and everything like that. We think about how Breonna Taylor's uh, murder and Iani Stanley Jones murder uh, were portrayed in the news versus other white women victims. Right. Um, so this this compassion. For the white woman, for the, the the white white woman who cries out, opposed to a black woman's right. uh, pain or uh, body. Hmm. Hmm.
3: Um, I want I wanted to thank thank you for that, Ash. And I, I, I wanted to like move the conversation into something you guys mentioned early, yesterday that I was really fascinating. Is it anti not anti blackness? You mentioned it was Afro pessimism. Afro pessimism. Mm-hmm. Um. I was fascinated by that. Um, uh, Rachel, do you want to go ahead and take the lead on that one and, and just explain what that is and how we it ties into the conversation that we're having right now?
6: Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I learned about Afro-pessimism in undergrad. I went to UC Irvine. And uh, some of my professors there, you could think of them as the pioneers of Afro-pessimism. So um, Jared Sexton, Frank B. Wilderson, there's a lot That they take from Sadia Hartman, Hortense Spillers. Um, So, thinking about like my training at Irvine, I would say a lot of my professors would probably say like Afro pessimism is about like describing the problem, not necessarily not necessarily like um, prescribing the problem, but more so describing the problem Um, and thinking about um, the afterlife of slavery. So that's you know from Sadia Hartman. So uh, that's like Afro-pessimism in a nutshell, but also to like this critique, not only of white supremacy, but also the specificity of anti-Blackness in American society um, as well as globally.
3: Okay, that's dope. Um, And I think one of the things I I, I see when I hear from Afro-pessimism is to your point, um, you don't have to be a white person to actually adhere to Afro pessimism, right? It's actually um something that can be embedded within how even black men see black women, right? And their mm-hmm. um and just you know, whether it's appeal or dealings. Am I am I on base or off base on that one?
6: Can you say that one more time, please? How
3: black men it could it, it, black men can actually take up take on the mantle of Afro pessimism and how they um view black women.
6: Mm, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. There's been some critiques and everything. Um, I would say too. It looks Afro pessimism thinks about blackness in terms of like positionality um, and not necessarily like these essentialized notions of race. Um, so thinking of and also too, I, I forgot to mention like drawing from from um, Orlando Patterson's book, um, Slavery and Social Death. It was published in 1982. Um, he's a sociologist, uh, but thinking about like the three constituent elements of slavery, like gratuitous violence, natal alienation, and general dishonor. But um, thinking about Blackness as like occupying uh, this position of like social death and thinking of like the the term humanity, uh, but like maybe a capital H, like the human as like this position in society, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's also like this comparative uh racial analysis between like whiteness blackness and at times like uh indigenousness or redness thinking about like Native Americans right and um the stripping of like Native American land and different things like that but I'm getting really like
3: <laughs> no <laughs> deep yeah. into like
6: my own research here so no
3: no yeah I mean but I was I was I was um following here um Ashley Toy you want you want to chime in
4: Ash is the the, the Afro-pessimist um, <laughs> specialist.
5: <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Rachel, that's Rachel's uh, area of expertise. So I, I'm not as versed uh, in Afro-pessimism, but I do think that conversation of theft of body that uh, Hortense Spillers talks about, does allow us to have an understanding of how black women are positioned and have been treated historically in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, is all encompassing in, in multiple schools of thought, mm-hmm. uh, including Afro-pessimism. OK. I know why
4: both y'all made me think about, and my committee for my dissertation probably going to hate me for this, but <laughs> it made me think about Robin, Dr. Robin D'Angelo. Have y'all read her what was book? the book again? Is that white
6: fragility? White fragility, okay, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah.
4: Why I, you know, I love mentioning her because again, she's a white woman and she's a white woman where her book is calling out, you know, the fragility of even talking about race for white people, right? And she has this term in there, these two terms, right? Um, universalism and individualism, right? So the ability for White people to think about a situation where it's, if I'm feeling this, everybody should feel this, right? So if I'm hurt or distraught over a situation, say, um, a political standing on something everybody should be hurt right? right but then they also have the privilege to step out of that and be individuals when you say well white people you know have historically been racist well i'm not one of those white people right, right. Yes. I'm, I'm i'm not a racist right yeah. but then that goes over the point of identifying this historical basis in which we live in the afterlife of slavery right Mm -hmm. where even though you may or may not individually be racist you're still privileged within a system that gives certain rights associated with your whiteness right you're still getting a benefit
6: exactly no and then what you said like just putting that in conversation like this idea of the human as like this universe like this uh, universal, <laughs> right? But at the same time that this uh, this human, this idealized human was, I don't want to say created, but thinking about that, even in terms of like the constitution, right? At the same time, all men are quote unquote created equal, like slavery is going on, like slavery is, is happening, right? And we have people who are deemed less than or non-human, Right. So, but I like what you said to it. Cause I haven't read it, but um, I can hear how it's in conversation. Not that she would say that herself, but I can definitely hear how it's in no, conversation. It's, a real, it's actually
4: a it's a good book. I would actually recommend it. So Dr. Um D'Angelo, right fragility, she's a professor of whiteness studies. Yeah. Um, I forgot which university and, and for for a starting conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to even Acknowledge that privilege of universality, right, um, and then being able to step out of that and be an individual when it's convenient,
3: right? It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a, um it's a great book because it, again it deconstructs the ideal of white womanhood, you know, um, and then it it's particularly fascinating because it trying to tries to figure out where in lies the um the issue and why w- white women have the inability for advocacy. You know, because again, they center themselves in any position, position regarding, um, you know, uh, pain or regarding, um, any type of like societal ills, it's their purview that matters. And then everybody else, you know, it's the, everybody else takes secondary to their particular, um, ideals. And it's like, it really, it's a, it, it's a fascinating read. Um, definitely, I definitely recommend that, um, All right, so let me just ratchet up the conversation here, just looking intra, looking within the black community. And I know um, it was mentioned prior, but talking about how does anti-blackness within our community continue to be a progeny for white supremacy, um, you know, Toya, you kind of like laughing? What are you laughing at? I am
4: because <laughs> that that interracial community conversation, um, it made me think and it, it made me think of a word that a past professor of mine, Dr. David Eichert, he coined the surrogate oppressor in reference to black men, right? Okay. So white people don't necessarily have to surveil us in our bodies all the time because black men within our community think that they are the white people and surrogate oppressed so I
5: like it is- <laughs> huh i said i like that i've never heard of it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So sur- sur- question, but go, go
3: no, ahead no no keep going I li- i'm gonna let you i want to let you get off like you know i want to hear more about like you know that particular perspective I'm serious. Why are you laughing?
4: <laughs> because I know, I know it's a touchy subject. No, but that's when what people look But I, I want to hear it. I, I
3: want to hear so it. So
4: that's why I'm saying that this is a black man, right? A black professor, tenured at Vanderbilt University that has coined that term in reference to Black men, how they act within our community interracially so surrogate oppression. And so when you think about um, issues that go on within our community and why black women um, they turn inward to one another, right? So going even deeper into um, well, it's not just the black community but what it are women you know, doing amongst themselves because they feel like, well, white women aren't acknowledging our problems and black men aren't acknowledging our problems. So now we have to turn to one another in order to get the work done. Right. Right. So we're not only being oppressed by um, this sense of whiteness. Right. But we're also being oppressed by these gender relations within our community interracially. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. Um, It was a Uh, a tweet or a quote that over a few years ago said that white men black men are the white men of the black community you know you guys heard that quote before
4: i have i have heard that quote
3: okay i
6: haven't heard it but it's very
3: provocative i haven't heard it but it it makes sense you've you've heard that ashley or you haven't
5: I have not, but I could think about a few uh, areas where it may hold true. Okay. (laughs) Especially if you go into the black church.
3: Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh Uh-oh. So So, go ahead and go to speak your part. What do you got to say about that?
5: First of all, I I, am Baptist bread, Baptist, you know, born Baptist bread when I die, Baptist dead. But uh, because of that, I have an experience and just an understanding of how the black church has been pivotal in the oppression of black queer folks. Um, uh, Specifically, black male leadership, uh, as it's been established in the church. And we know that, you know, it's the foundation of our movements. It's the foundation uh, of how we've gotten free in the conversation of America. But then within the black community, you have, for example, Bayard Rustin who was very important to the civil rights movement. However, his position in the uh, March of Washington was kind of erased from history, mm-hmm. right? So it's again, it's this black queer male body that cannot have any type of authority because he's gay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we could think about the LGBTQIA community uh, in, in their position within the black community. And, and that's where I'm thinking about where uh, black men may pay, play a position similar to a white man. Mm. Mm. Racial. Well, that's a word.
6: I'll I'll leave it there.
3: <laughs> Toya. I'm
4: just saying. I I I agree. I agree. There's some there's some things within our own community where it's Toya. like, how can we even. Come together as a collective to even battle this this idea of whiteness if we still have things within ourselves right Mm -hmm. so there was this aspect of my own study right where it's like have you heard of the black woman who She's a lawyer, and her her friend bought 97 acres of land in Wilkinson, Georgia, in 2020. Right?
3: Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, I'm not familiar.
4: Okay, okay. So her name is Ashley Scott, and she and her friend bought this these acres of land in response to what was happening to the crisis that was happening in 2020. Right? So George Floyd, Amal Arbery, Breonna Taylor. Right. And so they said, we want to buy this land in order to feel safe and feel protected, right? Um, But this is something that has historically been done and even represented in literature. And it made me think about Toni Morrison's Paradise. So in Toni Morrison's Paradise, you have this harbor where it's all Black people. And you think because there's not, white people, right, thus not white supremacy, right, you're not being oppressed, that you think the town is going to flourish and it's going to be fine, right? But the problem is white people didn't have to be there in order for the town to suffer because the ideology of white supremacy still existed, Mm. right? So I think that's what we see when we talk about, well, what about us turning in? In intra, right, interracially and coming together to fight these forces well, it's not going to happen even if white people aren't there because we still have that ideology that we want to oppress somebody, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't have to, we don't blacken each other by race. We blacken each other by sexuality. We blacken each other by gender. We blacken each other by these things where we can't even come together, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
6: Yeah. And it's interesting because I talk about that or I talked about that, I guess, in my dissertation too. But uh, you know, and it's interesting how Toni Morrison, I'm sorry I have to say this because uh, yeah. I wrote about her, but like like the first line is like in the book is they shoot the white girl first. And so like ah! she chose that as her first line because I feel like to her readers, I'll say her non-black readers is like again, like this for any suffering to be legible, it has to be like a white woman suffering, right? They like, oh my gosh, they shot the white girl for like, what happened, you know? Um, so also like this illegibility of like black suffering, but yeah, get into what you were saying. Um, uh, Let's tell about like uh, uh, the blackening of, of certain groups and people, right? Um, even within like, uh, or black people, you know, being a part of that.
3: Right. Um, you know, Right when I um, hear that line, how you know black men are the white men of the black community, um, it it kind of is interesting. Obviously, being a black man, I'm kind of like, man, it's like it makes me take stock. Like, well, what does that even mean, right? And then you got to sort of think like, as Toya talks about, you know, being a progeny of white supremacy, but how adhering to whether patriarchy or you know um, or ideal of um, diminishing the value of LGBT. LGBTQI um, members within the community, and then even even um, being treatment of Black women, right? And then how you know treating Black women as secondary, or you know even making slide jokes where they say, well, you hear like uh, um, Black men say," and it's kind of getting to body shame here, but Black men say, "Oh, well, you know she's got a you know she's got a white woman, a Black woman, a white woman has a Black woman's body." You know, and it's like, you know, so now they're taking over or they're better. It's kind of like it's really finding every opportunity to diminish the value of a black woman, even based on physicality, right? Like, because there's no way, no matter how thick a white woman is, can really replace a black woman. But even the idea that, you know, because she has a body phenotype, that means she's replacing a black woman's space. Um, That in itself shows you how black men are so quick to replace or devalue the presence of a black woman, um, you know, just for the simplest thing of sexuality, right? Um, and so th- and that's kind of what I take from that. And then obviously, you know, adhering to the idea of white supremacy by, you know, whether it's value in, in payment, value in social, you know, hi- um, hierarchy, you know, value, in, however you want to place value um, how oftentimes black men don't stand in the gap, but often, you know, operate within the purview of how white men see black women, and then taking on that pur- pur- that purview in their own ideals. Am I making sense here? Toya, you're nodding in affirmative. It
4: yeah, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I think when we think about how we come together as a collective in the community, right? Mm-hmm. It shouldn't just be, well, I need to go out of my community in order to find support, right? I'm going to um, devalue black women um, based upon these stereotypes that are, um, well, you know, if I go this way, um I'd rather not deal with black women because, right, Right. they're 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 harder to deal with. And these type of women are easier to deal with. And it just it's so trivial. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, When there are bigger issues to to talk about intra um, racially that that we need to get to.
6: Yeah. And it's also like a form of silencing too. Right. Cause I think it like plays into that stereotype of like the angry black women, like black women being difficult, black women being difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that stereotype, but it's a way of silencing uh, black women when they speak out against like the violence that's um, inflicted
3: upon them. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. Most definitely. Um, all right. So let's let go ahead and, and, Move the conversation into again Roe v. Wade here, and um, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and he was talking about how, um, you know, his conflict in Roe v. Wade was how, uh, black babies were being, you know, predominantly more uh, aborted as opposed to white, um, white uh, children, and you know, the idea of eugenics theory. Um, Do you guys have an opinion on that, on eugenics, or or are you familiar with the ideal?
6: Yeah, so I'm thinking of, like, the eugenics movement of the 1930s, right? Um, And then there's, like, this positive eugenics, like, the, what is it, breeding of of certain groups of people to form a superior race, but also negative eugenics, like, uh, the, uh, what's the killing of certain groups of people to like, um, you know, eliminate, I guess, uh, inferior races or inferior people. So thinking about like uh, the eugenics movement and how that also relates to like, even like Nazi Germany and da, 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 right. Okay. Um, Cause I'm thinking about like how Hitler took notes from like American mm-hmm. politics, um, but how that um, kind of informed like uh. uh, uh conversations around like uh, abortion and abortion rights and everything. And I'd mentioned this earlier about like the forced sterilization of black and brown uh, women. So thinking of like uh, the history of, how the history of the eugenics movement movement, uh, connects to like second wave feminism um, of like the 1960s and 70s.
3: Ash, what are your thoughts?
5: Well, not to, to over Tony Morrison, the conversation, but I'm thinking about <laughs> Toni Morrison's uh, discussion of Samuel Cartwright's work in eugenics in the origin of others and what that played in uh, the progression of experimentation on Black bodies, medical treatment of Black bodies, and how, how that's just for the benefit of the, the dominant. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the, eugenics is definitely... Uh, something in conversation with thinking about Roe Ro, Ro v. Wade. It wasn't a Black woman's body that that really uh, was in the center of that conversation.
3: Right. right. Toya, what do you
5: think? Or a trans person, or I'm anything sorry. for in the, for that matter.
4: Um. When I think about, I know I I started automatically thinking about disability rhetoric. It's not my specialization, but having. Um, been in discussion I don't know why it made me think of um discrete theory so thinking about even blackness as a disability in which to um start trying to manipulate eugenics to get rid of right so I I think that's uh it's a realm where it gets very dark
3: so like the idea of you know, behind um, the false theory behind eugenics. You know, again, you mentioned um, in Auschwitz and Germany how they believed in, you know, the pure race. And a lot of people don't realize that, you know, eugenics theory plays a lot into the right-wing ideology of Roe v. Wade. And so when you hear, like, say, a black man talk about, oh, yeah, you know, um, black people tend to have more abortions than um, than white people. And it's like, well, and then they use that. And black churches... They progenize that particular um, uh, idea as like why they are against abortion. And there's a lot of things that could really be tied into it. But even, let's say, to say, even if those facts are true, like, yeah, more white men, women have, have abortions. But let's say, you know, it rings true that black women have a high propensity for abortions comparatively in percentage wise to white women, although there are more numbers of white, white women having abortions, um, black women having high proportionality. But then we have to talk about why is that, right? Why would that be even the case? And and you cannot ignore, you know, societal hierarchy of like black women not having access to childcare, black women not having access to particular forms of healthcare, black women, you know, not having access to just, you know, the particular, um, uh, a a foundation of, of protection and whether financial or social. And so, you know, to expect black women to have children you know, which is a war on their bodies because black women, as, we, as you guys know, um, have a, are often discarded in their pain in the hospitals. And, you know, black women dying on, have a high propensity of dying on the birth table because of by delivering babies because they think that black women's pain, it should be ignored. And so a black woman not wanting to have a baby in this country is really a self, a form of protectionism within themselves because if you're not going to protect me, then I have to protect me. And I shouldn't be forced to risk my life in order to adhere to right-wing ideal of eugenics theory. Um, am I off base any, anywhere, ladies?
5: Well, you you bring up really good points with this. One, we're thinking about America and this reproductive economy. The basis of this country is from Black women's bodies and in enforced births, right. right? So this has been going on. Uh, but then I also kind of wanted to bring up this idea of Black pain, uh, just kind of putting it out there and not to go too far off, but you have uh, conditions like sickle cell uh, disease and other types of things that affect the Black community that, that doesn't necessarily kind of get that, uh, that understanding or that same compassion as other types of illnesses. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, no doubt. Racial.
5: Definitely. No, because I was thinking
6: too, just like this the history of like um gynecology. And and you hit the nail on the head actually too when you said that like black women being forced to have children, like that was a part of slavery, like black women being raped by white slave masters, right? Right. Um, thinking about that. But also um when I had mentioned the field of gynecology and how like these procedures were tested on black women. Um, without A lot of times without any type of pain, like uh, pain medication or anything, because there's this idea that Black people don't experience pain. Right. Uh, um, and so, um, again, like this just continued history. It's a part of that history. And um, also to like uh, thinking about like sexual violence, continued sexual violence against Black women that would cause Black women to like seek out abortions is, in addition to the other uh, reasons that you said.
3: Right.
5: Yeah, more of that history, Henrietta Lex, Yeah. you know, in, yeah. in the treatment of her body in the immortal cell, what is known as, or, uh, Sadia, I'm sorry, Sadia Hartman, the, the, this is Sarah Bartman, uh, in the treatment of her body. So just this, again, experimentation on black bodies where the advancement of science and psychology, uh, is just, it's wild.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I was thinking as you guys were like talking and we were talking about, I just think the idea of social hierarchy, right. And, and, and maybe I'm off the base here and I just see if I can, if it's a little bit weird, but sometimes I feel like the advocate, the advocating of black people having babies is not because they really care about the sanctity of life, but really because they only, they look at black people as a workforce. And so, you know, and ideally, you know, they look for – they're pushing this idea of, like, yeah, we need, a, we need more you know, black babies. But, you know, you don't look at black people as really humans. They look at it as mules for the capitalism, mules for the idea of keeping society going. You know, because I honestly, if you're not seeking a society where equality is a basis of understanding, then you understand that there's a hierarchy, social hierarchy in society. And if you're pushing for, you know – people of certain races or demographic to have more babies, then you understand instinctually that that race, of, that race of children are des, are being created to uphold a supremacy or uphold capitalism, uphold a society that's not going to benefit them. Am I too, am I but, like going totally I, off the rails here? I would here? say
6: yes and no. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I would say yes But at the same time i would say no because of like incarceration in this country so like the disproportionate incarceration of black folks in this country so and then i would connect that to uh what it means like to again black positionality and white positionality right like this concept of freedom is based on the concept of slavery. Like freedom, you like there is no quote unquote freedom without slavery, right? Right. So um on the like okay, so yeah, maybe perhaps like a, a workforce, but also like if you look at like how many black people or like the disproportionate number of black people who are incarcerated. So thinking about this new like uh the taking back of Roe v. Way, like um how many black women will be penalized like for seeking out abortions or having abortions or whatever right and what that means right um in addition or at the same time of like this this uh push for more white women to have children does that make sense
3: no that makes that makes sense that makes sense totally. okay ashley or do you guys want to chime in
4: i was just thinking about um So Rachel mentioning how many black women will get penalized, right? So already having black people in a state of criminality to put them in jail and increase access to labor, right? So that doesn't decrease labor. It just increases free labor.
3: (laughs) Right. So, so, okay, maybe not, not a pushback's not the right word, but like kind of like Rachel, you're in a state, my old home state in your current home state, um, just, you know, pushed a and again, Democratic legislature said, you know, there was a bill trying to um stop the advancement of black you know, bodies, black men in who are incarcerated to fight fire fires. And, you know, that was uh, effectively um destroyed. I mentioned some of my podcast last week, you know, because they said, No, we actually need these bodies in order to continue the idea of free labor, um, to put out this danger these dangerous fires. And so, um Yes, incarceration does play a factor into that, but then my idea is like if we continue to use, especially with the the continued um, growing of the private um, prison industry, to continue of using these black bodies again to fuel capitalism or to fuel um, whatever forms of labor in society. So yeah, you might we might have a high propensity of getting locked up, but that doesn't stop the show, right? And that, in fact, it actually helps the show because now we can use your. Use your body for we don't really have to pay you at a fair rate because you you've made a mistake in life and now you're incarcerated. So I I, I don't I mean so maybe it still yeah go, I, goes in my theory. Okay oh, no no keep going I'm sorry. Yeah.
6: No, I guess one thing that I'm like on the one hand yes, you know, I'm I guess what I'm saying too like if there were no fires, <laughs> like it's not like right. black people wouldn't be incarcerated. You know what I'm saying? Right. And also just thinking about like police violence, right? And the killing of black people, right? Uh by the police. Um this state sanctioned violence against black people. So I would say like labor yeah it's a part of it but i would say like it goes beyond labor like this like complete and utter disregard for black life mm. maybe that's the afro pessimism maybe.
0: yeah
5: i think it's also just the the commodification of black bodies for the benefit of building this nation historically. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned California, right? So we could talk about California, Texas, Florida, all in conversation with each other as having some of the highest incarceration rates in this era of mass incarceration, right? Mm-hmm. Or uh, the the prison industrial complex. So it's it's in that that afterlife of slavery that that Rachel uh, mentioned in thinking about the history of the legacy of the 13th. Commitment as Michelle Alexander talks about the New Jim Crow.
3: Mm, yeah, no doubt. Yeah,
5: definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: All right. Um, so, listen, I want to. I usually at the point of this podcast, I try to give everybody a last word on the subject. And so, um, you guys can talk about anything, um, you know. But I'm giving you guys you know, the last piece of like, what are your thoughts on just anything we've spoken about, um, and You know, I'm going to start off with Toya.
4: I think, um, I think a part of it is also thinking about, well, what's going to be the best route for moving forward in light of um, Roe versus Wade. Right. Mm -hmm. And then also thinking about the other things that the other implications of this. Right. So I remember immediately um, after you know abortion abolish people were talking about or it came up with well what about um de- se- segregating the schools again and what about um gay marriage and what about all these other things that we have worked so hard um to accomplish over the past <laughs> decades so where where do we go from here and i think It all comes down to making sure that you're not voting against your own interests in order to keep up um, what you feel like is privilege. Right. Right.
0: Um,
4: Because what you feel like is privilege in that moment has set us back hundreds of years. Um, And I guess that's a little Afro Afro pessimistic, but everything's in a state of shit right now right (laughs) and it goes down to well what are what what are the some of the factors that contributed to that historically and what does it look like moving forward and who who's actually going to lead in that movement of cleaning up some of the shit and i know a lot of black women are tired in that sense
3: yeah Ashley.
5: Yeah, I, I agree with Toya. I think uh, if I could consider some final thoughts, it like I'm always drawing from Audrey Lord uh, mm-hmm. in the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. She says racism and homophobia are real conditions of all of our lives in this place and time. I urge each And every one of us down here to reach down into that deep place of knowledge inside herself and touch that terror and loathing of any difference that lives there. See whose face it wears. Then the personal as the political can begin to illuminate all of our choices. So when we think about these political choices in the upcoming uh, uh, year and and next year and then, of of course, the the presidential election uh, in the next two years, our choices cannot forget about race. Yeah. Our choices cannot forget about uh the LGBTQIA plus community. Our choices cannot forget about black bodies, men and women. Right. Right.
3: Thank you. And Rachel.
5: Yeah, so I agree with both
6: Toya and Ashley. Um, and so just kind of to reiterate, like getting on the same page about these issues, um, and uh I would say, uh, believe in Republicans when they say they're gonna do something. <laughs> like, don't take it as a joke. Like, right? when they for say real. What they, said, they mean it,
0: <laughs> <laughs> when they stand ten toes but down. Them. What they
4: say, exactly. Like, you real. know,
6: take them at their word, Um, but also to like recognizing, um, you know, our own complacency and everything. So, going back to Ashley, the quote that you brought with Audrey Lord, like. Um, the master's tools will never dismantle the master yeah so I agree with everyone here um, but definitely getting on the same page and I guess too I have to say this um, you know well everything that's going on uh, just also taking care of yourself because it's a lot to take in and it seems like one thing after the other so just not forgetting to like pour into yourself as well because this is heavy this
3: is some heavy stuff here yeah absolutely All right, fantastic. So I like to always end the program as a a love letter to black culture. And so this letter um, is, say, Dear Black Culture. I actually wanted to target this letter towards uh, my black men. Um, It's time for us as a unit to collectively step up and meet women at the front of the line. Black women have been holding it down in the space of advocacy for so long. They have been leaders, the educators, the muse, and unfortunately, the mules the way society expects black women to take hold and take command and yet still be regulated as second-class citizens on a racial hierarchy is disgusting. But honestly, society wouldn't be able to get away with this unless black men allow this to happen. Uh, we've stopped being the protectors of our own black womanhood or hell, even black culture. We, out- we allow too much false identity and false allyship into this space. So we need to do better. Uh, we need to match the energy of our black women. We need to become the leaders that we so often portray ourselves and yet lack the empirical empirical data of showing. After all, Tupac said, I think it's time to kill for our women, time to heal our women, time to be real for our women. But also, Kendrick said, Tupac is dead, so you got to think for yourself. So part of that thinking of yourself is being real with ourselves, and that comes from the honesty that uh, we as a gender need to be better. Uh, if we want to become a more unified community um, not only should we shed white idealism within our consciousness with, uh, with our inherent anti-blackness, uh, we have to stop disrespecting our women. We have, to stop, we have to start uplifting them, empowering them, and in some cases step back and let them lead us. But I'm not trying to be too preachy here. I just wanted to have some unity and or unity, and we cannot do that until we as a unit of black men become better. And uh, what better way to actually end By going out on a song that speaks to unity. So, once again, thank you all for joining us. And with that being said, we're gonna ride out.
2: time I hear a brother call a girl a bitch or a hoe Trying to make a sister feel low You know all of that gots to go Now everybody knows there's exceptions to this rule I don't be getting mad when we playing it's cool But don't you be calling me out my name I bring rap to those who disrespect me like a dame That's why I'm talking One day I was walking down a block I had my cut-off shorts on, right? Cause it was crazy I, I walked past these dudes when they passed me One of them felt my booty, he was nasty I turned around red, somebody was catching the Rat, then the little one said, <laughs> yeah,
0: me bitch. and laughed,
2: since he was with his voice, he tried to break the fly, uh, I punched him dead in his eyes, and said, who are you calling and a bitch, U-N-I-T, who you